Hello, and welcome to RBC Disruptors. I'm John Stackhouse, host of our ongoing conversation about innovation, disruption, and how technology is changing everything around us. On today's show, we're looking at the biggest public health challenge to hit the world in years, the 2020 coronavirus outbreak, and asking whether smart technologies, artificial intelligence, information mapping, can succeed where medical technology has fallen short. One Toronto doctor and his remarkable Canadian startup believe big data can actually beat infectious disease, and perhaps they can disrupt our approach to public health, maybe even saving millions of lives in the process. Dr. Cameron Kahn is an infectious disease specialist at St. Michael's Hospital in downtown Toronto and professor of medicine at the University of Toronto. He's also the founder and CEO of Blue Dot, a social enterprise dedicated to fighting epidemics using big data and AI. Dr. Kahn was at the forefront of the fight against SARS in Toronto in 2003. A decade later, he launched Blue Dot because he felt he and the medical community were always chasing diseases rather than harnessing artificial intelligence to get ahead of killer viruses. In 2014, he raised $9.4 million and began hiring 40 employees to build automated infectious disease surveillance programs, which use machine learning and natural language processing. His AI programs comb news reports, monitor air travel data, and track livestock health reports to spot outbreaks even before health authorities can identify them. Over the last five years, he's been quietly building his enterprise by selling early warning services to governments, health agencies, and airlines. All this was on a steady course until New Year's Eve, when something remarkable happened. Blue Dot's alarm went off. Its computers told Dr. Khan something dangerous was emerging from Wuhan in China. The world knows painfully well what's happened since. But here's the thing. This challenge is not going to end with coronavirus. Over the last 20 years, infectious diseases have become more frequent and severe than in any other time in history. Global mobility, urbanization, climate change. There are plenty of factors, which is why Dr. Khan thinks we need to fight back, not just with medicine, but with the smart technologies and data that have transformed so many other aspects of our lives. Cameron Khan, welcome to RBC Disruptors. Thanks for having me. There's so much I want to ask you about uh, the ongoing struggle to contain killer viruses, the peculiarities of coronavirus, how Blue Dot was able to spot the virus so early on, and why you're able to do all this from uh, here in Canada. But maybe I can start with that New Year's Eve moment. Take us back to the end of 2019 and tell us a bit about what happened. So December 31st, New Year's Eve morning. Um, you know, I wake up and we have a number of, of staff that uh, monitor uh, news feeds uh, of various infectious disease risks that are appearing around the world. I'll, I'll say more about this, but essentially we've developed a platform that uses artificial intelligence to be scanning hundreds of thousands of different articles around the world every single day, uh, looking for outbreaks involving over 150 different diseases. Um, and we're doing this in over 65 languages every 15 minutes, 24 hours a day. So our team early morning, December 31st, receive an alert that is presented to us by this machine, which is telling us that there is an outbreak of a pneumonia with 27 people centered around this market, uh, in Wuhan. And, you know, when you get that information, of course, at that moment, you don't immediately know that this is going to turn into a worldwide outbreak, but 
this is where human intelligence is necessary to work in a complementary way with artificial intelligence, is what we realize is that this has all the ingredients of an outbreak like we saw with SARS. It started in the exact same way. There was a pneumonia back in 2003 that was of unclear origin that seems to have been traced back to a market where live animals were sold. So when you get that alert on the morning of December 31st, what do you do with it? Mm -hmm. So one of the first things that we do is we do a little bit of a sanity check. Uh, We know that there is lots of misinformation out there, and sometimes we will get information going through our system where, you know, the machine kind of thinks this is something that is worth our attention. Uh, But we may look at it and realize there's some inconsistencies here. There are things that don't quite sound right. Um, And so we will decide not to distribute that information further. We'll wait for corroboration, further verification to see if uh, if this seems to be uh, accurate or not. And the second thing that we did was immediately after recognizing the location, you know, we've built a platform that's not just tracking infectious diseases around the world. We have to understand how they spread and what the consequences might be. So for the last, you know, 17 years, I've been working with data on the entire world's air travel. Uh, this was something I studied as a professor for uh, more than a decade. Seems like an odd thing, perhaps, for a physician to be studying uh, this global network, but it really struck me that in many ways it had parallels with our own vascular anatomy and physiology. Our, what, know, what the, sparked that idea? What a fascinating connection! From well, it was the, in two thousand and three. One day when I saw a map of SARS, and I looked at it, and I thought that's not evenly distributed. It's all clustered in these few places. And, and why is that? Why, aren't, why don't we see any cases in Africa or in Latin America? And it led me to you know, reach the conclusion that diseases of people spread by the movements of those people. And how do we know how people move? Now, I arrived at the conclusion that if I can book a seat to know that seat 14B is available, but 14C is taken that there's some kind of financial transaction or record that must be generated. And where is it? And so I spent about a year doing an investigation on the information systems and airlines across the world and how they gather and collect and organize those data. As an academic, even before Blue Dot was created, I started to work with the commercial airline industry and you know, started to gather data on billions of of passenger flight itineraries. This is all anonymous data, uh, but it allowed me to understand the anatomy, if you will, of these arteries that are connecting the whole planet, and even the physiology of how there are flows through these arteries. If you actually look at a tracing of a person's blood pressure over ten seconds. And then you compare it to the flows of travelers through the city of Vancouver over 10 years, those two tracings actually look remarkably remarkably similar. And it shows you that there's a physiology. We move in certain ways. Maybe we're not that dissimilar from the migration of wildebeests, you know, um, in parts of Africa. We move in specific ways in certain times. But there are also moments where this system gets sick just like a person might. And it disrupts the flows of those movements. So I spent 10 years studying the system uh, and then realized that the system actually, this network 
is the conduit for the global spread of infectious diseases and understanding the conduit itself was the key to anticipating how diseases would spread. Take us back to the origins of Blue Dot. Uh, You've amassed airline data. Uh, You're still, you've you've got your day job. Uh, You're also teaching at the university. Uh, Why did you want to launch a company to take on this challenge? Mm -hmm. I think there were a couple of things that pushed me in a direction that I had not really anticipated. One was that it became clear to me that the funding priorities of many of the agencies uh, were reactive. I knew that this was a problem. I knew that we needed to focus on it, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the funding agency decides that this is a priority. Maybe there's some other flavor of of the month that uh, is is the current priority. So I think I always felt a bit like I was in the passenger seat, not in the driver's seat. I knew what I wanted to do. I knew what we needed to focus our attention on, but it didn't necessarily mean that the funders were had the same priorities. I think, think the second big issue was that it became clear to me during outbreaks when I would rapidly, you know, get all of my research together and, and generate some some reports uh, for the scientific literature, that that process was inherently slower than the pace with which outbreaks evolve and spread. So, you know, if you've ever submitted something to a scientific journal, it takes months typically before it's reviewed and editors go through it and then it's published and so forth. And that is an important process. It's very important that science is, um, the validity of that work is corroborated. Uh, but when you have to make decisions in hours or a day or two, and it takes months to get some of this information out, um, that that's not the right vehicle, uh, specifically when you have time-sensitive decisions that you're facing. Uh, I am not a serial entrepreneur. I didn't get my MBA. But ultimately, the conclusion that I came to was that we need a different mechanism to, one, invest in innovation um, that is high risk, that we're going to do things and we'll break things and they won't work and we'll start over again. Um, That's not always easy to do with the public purse. And second is that we need a system that can do this around the clock, not just when there's an emergency, we should all kind of jump on board and react that there needs to be systems that are operating on an ongoing basis, 24 hours a day. Um, and, And I will, I want to make a bit of a shout out to Mars Innovation and Mars Discovery District and the Ontario Centers of Excellence. I had no idea how to start. And these are the organizations that said, let's help you think through how you do this. How do you make a business case? You can make a presentation to other professors and academics in your sleep, but how do you make a business case? How do you end out um, turning this into a commercial venture that has the legs and the means to scale and accelerate the impact? So what, that was what a great tribute to John Evans, the uh, the creator of Mars, uh, brilliant physician, doctor who envisioned a place. Mars is literally at the intersection of Hospital Alley, University mm-hmm. Avenue in Toronto, and and the Uni- University of Toronto campus. And uh, John Evans saw this was his vision: uh, the need for a place where medical scientists could interact or even become entrepreneurs and have a safe space, mm-hmm. uh, and what you've described was what he 
probably foresaw decades decades ago when he uh, pushed for Mars. Yeah, just just two things about that. I learned how to examine patients in that building before it was what it was, uh, before it was restored at the Toronto General Hospital. So there's a history there. It didn't look quite as pretty uh, when I was in medical school. Um, and I do want to say, I don't know that Blue Dot would have existed had it not been for Mars Innovation, Mars Discovery District, Ontario Centers of Excellence. They really helped me wrap my head around this and take a leap of faith. Now, keep in mind as an academic and a, as a professor, you know, and as a practicing physician, that's a fairly predictable um, and fairly successful career path that you could pursue, or you could decide to create a venture that's likely going to fail and, and epically fail where, you know, everyone can see that failure. Um, and so that does require quite a leap of faith to do that in a culture where we value excellence and we should, but maybe we don't necessarily value risk-taking and failure perhaps as much as we, we could or should. Um, and so I think I just want to call out those organizations for helping me shift my mindset to one of opportunity uh, and focusing on what was potentially what was possible and less focusing on the risk of, of failure. And once you've got Blue Dot launched, what's the business model mm -hmm. that makes, uh, makes this work? Well, we are a software as a service um, uh, company. We basically are building systems that can empower governments to have intelligence around the clock to better protect their citizens. We are, and as a frontline healthcare worker, I I'm very mindful that hospitals are increasingly facing risks um, as well as their staff and their patients because we are having more of these outbreaks and more of these um, events occurring in the world. Delivering that intelligence to the triage nurse and to the docs in the emergency department in the ICU and so that a hospital has better situational awareness and their staff are empowered so they can protect themselves uh, we saw what happened during SARS when our healthcare workers died. They can better protect their patients. They can prevent outbreaks in the hospitals that can paralyze the whole institution and even the communities that we serve. If we let someone walk out the door who has a potentially dangerous disease, we, we might be the difference between one case of a disease in one individual and an outbreak that paralyzes a whole city. And the third piece is that we are empowering businesses uh, with these type of um, data and analytics and this type of intelligence so they can better protect their employees and their customers. And airlines would be a good example of a private sector organization that is very much, right, um, uh, a key stakeholder when it when it comes to, to confronting these types of infectious disease threats. And it, as, a, as a business, as a business owner, uh, and I'm thinking back to the New Year's Eve uh, situation you found yourself in, how do you balance serving your clients with the public need, mm -hmm. the public need to know what uh, maybe you're obligated to tell your clients about first? Yeah, it's a really, really great question. Thank you for, for asking it. Um, it is, it's, it's challenging and I'll, I'll kind of share, um, you know, my first perspective is, of course, what I am eager to do and, and the values I bring to Blue Dot as a, as a company, and we are a for-profit company. Uh, we are a social enterprise in the sense that we are certified as what's called a B corporation. We 
very much are thinking about uh, multiple currencies that we can do well and do good, um, and that profit and purpose are not do not have to be a zero sum game. But we're using business as a vehicle to accelerate and scale the impact of our work, and that ultimately really has to come down to revenue. As a professor who wrote grants over and over and over again, there reached a point where I actually was almost no longer doing the research anymore. It was just basically you just constantly keep writing and and that's about all you have time for. And there's a certain point where you cannot scale beyond that because there's only a finite amount of time and energy you have. If we think about this from a philanthropic perspective, is that sustainable? You know, can we constantly rely on donors, especially when there isn't the house isn't on fire. When there's no outbreak that's happening right now, we are very reactive beings. We're react, you know, we operate in reactive organizations. It's very easy to just be like, I'm not going to worry about that right now because there's, there's nothing, you know, that's, that's really uh, a, an immediate risk that I'm facing. So I think that is where, again, going back to discussions with Mars, um, that perhaps really the way to get out of the passenger seat where someone else is driving the agenda into the driver's seat is to take a leap of faith, create value. And instead of having two or three people be the peer review for my grant, you know, to have the market be the peer review. And perhaps the market is a more democratic assessor of value than a couple of people who might be reviewing a scientific grant that I uh, submitted. You're also harnessing um, critical information. You have to share that with your clients. At the same time, you have an obligation to share that with the public. Mm-hmm. How do you, you know, when, when you discovered or realized that there was an outbreak mm-hmm. in Wuhan, how do you balance that? Yeah. Um, and, and how do you think through, do I jump on Twitter right now and say, yeah, yeah. hey, folks, uh, there's a, a fire in the movie house, so yeah. to speak? Yeah. Uh, and, and, or do you go through, it, uh, through, uh, through a different method? So I, there's a few things there. You know, one is, uh, again, as, as someone who lives in, and has a foot in the, the world of academia is that we publish our work in the scientific literature as well because there are many instances, and I'll just give you an example with the coronavirus outbreak, we had published, I believe, what is the very first study in the scientific literature on this coronavirus that was published anywhere in the world on January 14th. So that's kind of light speed for the academic world. We so pub- that's going from December 31st to January 14th. You're Correct. getting something published in, a, it's in, in online, an online It's online. It's that's been peer-reviewed. in this turnaround. Well, part of it was, again, it's, this is all about anticipation, right? If we're flat-footed, we're going to be way behind. So it's about anticipation and saying there's something here. Don't know for sure, but I think this is something that the world needs to know. Now, these are not bespoke analytics that are like for a specific city or a country that they would want to know, but this is to let the world know, here's what we are seeing. And so I think there's a balance there. The other part of it is it also gives the scientific community an opportunity to assess the rigor behind our work. When we publish this work in the scientific literature, if you actually look at this article, it's it's published in the Journal of Travel Medicine uh, on January 14th. The top cities at the list of where this coronavirus would go to next, if 
I mean, we said to ourselves, either this outbreak could get bigger or maybe it is bigger than we are currently seeing. And if that is the case, where are the next places that we would expect it to go? And about roughly eight of the top 10 places, you'll see them all, Bangkok, Tokyo, Seoul, places that just one after the next were the first places to actually uh, detect uh, this coronavirus. So it does really highlight again to us that we can use AI to be listening for information through the through the internet, this vast medium, and gathering key pieces of intelligence, we can be connecting it to how people move around the world, and we can anticipate those next leaps, and we can provide those early notifications to uh, organizations in those destinations to say, this is what we're seeing, here's something that you should pay attention to. So there is also a risk, of course, of just putting information out there without context. So... You know, you get a discrete number of characters in Twitter that doesn't necessarily capture the nuance of what you're seeing and how it needs to be to be thought of. Uh, so we're mind, very mindful of how you communicate risk in a way that is meaningful and not counterproductive. It's, it's, it's an amazing story of scientific curiosity, of uh, pursuit, uh, and also entrepreneurship. And, and one of the reasons we're interested in this from uh, RBC's perspective is the potential for innovation, especially for Canada. And, and we want to see Canada innovate more. Uh, we want to see Canada create more firms like yours and scale them and be, uh, gain global global relevance. You've talked a bit about the so-called enabling environment uh, uh, here in Toronto with Mars uh, and the Ontario Centers of Excellence that helped you get off the ground. I'm curious how, uh, how you were able to develop this global leadership uh, from your perch here in in Canada, and then also curious how you scale that uh, to a much bigger effort than you're uh, seeing today. Mm -hmm. I think we we hear this all the time. Well, we've got an immense amount of talent in Canada. Um, and I say this is a really proud Canadian. I had the, you know, opportunity to train at, you know, Cornell and Columbia and Harvard. Um, and I saw an immense amount of talent, but I think the difference wasn't talent. It was mindset. And I think when we talk about moving from a small company to a, a company that is truly global and is having big impact, I think one of the big challenges is that we as Canadian institutions need to be supporting our Canadian innovators. And I, and I will say this, you know, with respectfully but honestly, is that getting adoption in Canada has been the biggest challenge. I mean, I say this as a Canadian who was inspired by what I saw here in Canada, who's trained here, um, you know, I'm not someone who dwells on accolades, but, you know, was the recipient of a governor general's award. If if I can't get... You, you know what you're doing. I, mean, and I, I will, with humility, I, don't mean that I will you, say... You've got credibility in the space and you're having trouble selling your services to Canadian companies, institutions, governments. Yeah, I think... That's the uh, number one challenge I hear from yeah, entrepreneurs yeah. Across, um, across the map. It is... It is uh, amazing that tiny countries and organizations around the world are knocking on our door and eager to work with us. 
but the place down the street is really hard to get um, their attention. And is is this Uh, private sector, public sector? I I would say my experience has mostly been challenging with the the public sector. Um, It's tough. It's really, really tough. This is hospitals, health systems. Exactly. Yeah, very, very challenging. Um, And, you know, many early stage companies arrive at the conclusion that they need to leave Canada. And, you know, as a proud Canadian, that would be heartbreaking for me, but you kind of start to come to the conclusion that maybe there just isn't the opportunity today. Maybe you have to leave, become successful and maybe come back. But, um, and, and I can't speak to this in other sectors outside of health. But I think the public health and healthcare sectors are amazing. Have you ever gone to go and talk to a hospital and say, I have an innovation that will allow you to do things so much better? And the response you will get is, yeah, we are broke. The thought of even spending a penny on doing something better is unthinkable. So this is the challenge And then when I go to an international hospital in the U.S., south of the border, somewhere else, guess what's the first question they ask me? What's happening in your own institution? Well, tell me a little bit about what's happening in Canada. Um, It makes it very hard to drive this kind of growth when in your own backyard, it's difficult to get that kind of uh, adoption and attention. And I think it's just largely... Back to mindset. I mean, I say this respectfully, but I think in many ways we can sometimes just be, we're, we're better followers than we are leaders and early adopters. Um, you know, and, and, and again, I, I recognize that that's a significant statement there, but I think in many ways that has been um, a source of, of frustration because we, what I would want to do more than anything as a Canadian who was inspired by this is use this kind of technology to be supporting other Canadians right here. Um, But instead, we are working in Asia and elsewhere and south of the border and around the world, but it's been really challenging for us to actually um, be able to bring that kind of innovation into our own country. So when it comes to growing a business, I think what I would say is If we really want to see Canadian innovation, we need a marketplace that is actually receptive to innovators and their solutions. And they won't be perfect. They never are. But to take a leap of faith in the same way that the innovators are taking risks and support those organizations to be able to do what we've been able to do, albeit on a limited scale, create jobs, have a social impact around the world. There's 40 of us and we're being able to impact lives around the world. Um, imagine what we could do if there were 400 of us. Uh, and that's not even a big organization. So so I think that this is a, uh, an important challenge, I think, that we, that we face. And I know I'm not alone. When I talk to my fellow colleagues who are, you know, CEOs and founders of health companies, they've basically arrived at the conclusion that um, if you if you put too much into trying to grow in the Canadian market, I mean, it's that's a very serious risk to take. And, and every, I mean, we're here in Ontario, it's uh, different uh, by province, but certainly 
uh, in Ontario, every government that has reviewed the healthcare system in, uh, in, in, in my memory, going back decades, has come up with some conclusion or there's been a recommendation that they allocate more funds to innovation, to strategic procurement, or that hospitals be mandated with uh, a certain amount of their budget for strategic procurement. Some would say, yeah, that does exist here, here and there. And yet, on the entrepreneur side, this is a, a, a complaint I hear about all the time, mm-hmm. that there isn't someone on the other side of the desk to, yeah. uh, to buy your services. Let's say, you know, if I, and I'm, I'm not being flippant about this, you know, we built this system that can crawl the web and gather all this intelligence in 65 languages and connect to the world's air travel data. In some ways, that has been an easier process than knowing how to navigate procurement. It is a bewildering process and um, one that can consume an enormous amount of energy um, and uh, one where you're just kind of in a maze going in directions that you don't necessarily know where you're going or where this is going to wind up. And that's, you know, obviously not an ideal, that's an enormous amount of energy consumed. And in an early stage company, you don't have the time to be in a procurement path for 18 months. Uh, that, that's a lifetime in the, the stage of, of an early company. So, um, so these are, I think, some of the real, and, and I, I just speak to this from a perspective of being a proud Canadian who would love to see more Canadian innovators. We have the talent here. We have an incredible social infrastructure. I don't have to worry every morning whether a bomb's going to go off and, and kill me or whether I drink water, I'm going to die of a disease. I can channel my energy into doing something that's far more productive. Do, do, do your investors want you to move? Um, I think our investors ultimately want us to succeed. And so, you know, how that happens is there are many paths in which that can occur. I mean, I'm a proud Canadian. I love it here. I would, you know, not want to be anywhere else. I think Toronto is, is, uh, is, is my home and, and I really feel very connected to it, but it is a challenging environment to grow a early stage health company. It doesn't mean we have to necessarily move, but it means that perhaps the market is not really receptive to the kind of innovations that we're developing uh, in Canada. And perhaps, um, you know, we need to be looking elsewhere in the world. I think we have certainly found that you know, Americans might sound like Canadians when we talk to them, but boy, do they have a very different mindset. Uh, on, on procurement or on, on business development generally? On an opportunity to solve a problem. It's, it's, I see that that can solve a problem. Let's find a way. It's mission first, mechanic second. Uh, I think here we tend to have, okay, that can solve a problem. Mechanics first, mission is secondary, and we get lost in the mechanics for an endless amount of time, which really exhausts everyone. What's your mission going forward? Ultimately, the fact that we're going to have to be able to move insights faster than the diseases spread themselves. We're going to have to spread knowledge faster than the diseases spread themselves. I'm not a a religious person, but I would say that there is a a passage in the Talmud that I often think about, um, and I use it in some of my talks, which is whoever saves a single life, it's considered as if they have saved the entire world. Um, It's a lovely thought that you don't know, and even as a healthcare worker, you don't know when you impact somebody's life what they might do for the rest of humanity. We're in this interesting era with data and analytics and technology where 
when I see a patient one at a time, that's a pretty incredible opportunity and experience to affect someone's life. We have the opportunity to be reaching billions of people. And that is, again, going back to like, what more, why am I taking this risk? Why am I doing this? Because that opportunity is just far too meaningful to pass up. Um, and it's what gets me out of bed inspired every day to think that I could be part of something that's so much bigger than myself. And I think ultimately deep down for all of us, that's probably what we're all seeking in our lives in some way is to be part of something that's bigger than just us. I came, I came across an article preparing for this conversation from uh, foreign affairs magazine from 25 years ago on, uh, the question of whether we had conquered infectious diseases mm -hmm. and there was skepticism in the article, but there was a, there was a view in the 1980s, certainly that that was behind us. Mm -hmm. We had kind of solved it and anything but has happened since it's, it's now more dangerous, worse, more prevalent infectious diseases. Why are we still kind of overwhelmed by this in mm -hmm. 2020? Mm-hmm. I think there's a few things. I mean, with respect to that statement about, you know, we're past infectious diseases, we've got antibiotics, you know, on to the next thing. I think for one, it really shows a lack of humility. I think the other key thing is let's, let's even go upstream from what we're talking about here. We're talking about early detection and, and outsmarting how these diseases move and so forth. But the way that we coexist with other living systems in our world is incredibly disruptive and detrimental to our own health and our own security and our own prosperity, for that matter. When we saw this news on December 31st, what I remember thinking is that, oh, this, this looks like SARS. It's the same story. Mother Nature, now in hindsight, is telling us something. When we mass produce livestock, we get in contact with things like influenza viruses that can trigger the next flu pandemic. Or when we mass consume wild animals, we encounter diseases that are found in the remote jungles. Or when we cut down forests, we come in contact with uh, diseases that humans have never seen before. It is that how do we peacefully coexist with other living systems in the world? We're going to have to figure that one out. It's not a small issue to address. But we're going to have to deal with that. Otherwise, we're going to have to deal with this every few years. And, and, and you've seen this uh, more than a few times, but certainly SARS, Zika, you were uh, early to it. Coronavirus, you were early to it. Are you here in 2020 more hopeful than, say, a decade ago or less hopeful that we can coexist as you describe it? Look, it's my hope that we can learn how to peacefully coexist with the nature, the, you know, nature and the world around us. We are, we might think that the rules of nature don't apply to us, but they do. So I'm hopeful that perhaps we will really think carefully about not just putting out the fire, but Where's the fire getting started in the first place? Let's not just do, I'm going to go to a medical metaphor. Let's not just deal with the symptoms. We've got to actually look at the underlying illness itself. And so I think that is incredibly important. Let's not lose sight of the fact this isn't about data and this isn't about analytics and technology and the internet. This is about thinking upstream to what gets this started in the first place. With respect to technology and innovation, I really have come to the conclusion that the rate limiting step is no longer data. It's no longer analytics. It's no longer technology. It's human behavior. And 
humans are so reactive. When we talk about building a better smoke detector, many individuals and organizations would rather let the house burn down than think about, you know, investing in a better smoke detector because we are such reactive beings. We react with incredible gust and enthusiasm when there's an emergency, but you can almost be certain that as soon as the emergency is over, we will not take the same level of enthusiasm and energy into preparing for the next outbreak. And that's ultimately for me, what I've been trying to do for the last 17 years is not lose focus. This is a threat, which we all know. You can ask any scientist. These are inevitable. They are going to happen again. It's an extraordinary paradox. Here we are wrestling with, you've got machines learning on our behalf uh, and spotting uh, the spread of viruses in ways we couldn't even a decade ago. And yet we're, we're, we're unable to address these ancient human uh, challenges of, of living uh, and cohabitating on this planet with other, with other species. I, I wonder in, in, in conclusion, if I can ask you coming out of this crisis, which we will, uh, what your hope is for what we may learn mm-hmm. and what we may adjust going mm-hmm. forward. I think there's two things. I think maybe the most important thing is for us all to take a look at how we live our life and think a little bit about how we might be contributing to this broader picture. I have a 14-year-old daughter who is constantly pushing me and the rest of our family to think about how we live our lives because she recognizes that in many ways she cannot vote and uh, she does not have representation in her future yet. And so I, I, and I think that in many ways she is there to kind of open our eyes to how we live our lives and what impact it is having on the world around us. So I hope we will reflect upon that. And I think the second piece is it's not an either or. At the same time, we need to be investing in innovation to be able to do things in a smarter faster, more efficient way um, because time matters. Minutes and hours and days matter. Uh, They turn into, can save lives, can uh, impact uh, entire communities, countries. And so what I do hope is that we support greater innovation. Um, Organizations like ours are motivated to, uh, to have this kind of impact. And I think we'd love to see other governments and businesses and organizations say, yeah, this is an important thing for us to do. Uh, Let's go on this ride with you. Well, I I know how much you've got on the go right now and wanted to thank you for spending your time with us and for sharing sharing this conversation. And uh, Cameron, for being part of RBC Disruptors, thank you. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. So I, I really appreciate having the opportunity to speak about this. You've been listening to RBC Disruptors. If you've enjoyed today's episode, we'd love for you to subscribe using your favorite podcast platform and submit a rating. That really helps us reach a wider audience. You can also take part in the conversation using the hashtag RBC Disruptors. For RBC, I'm John Stackhouse. Thanks for listening.